Today's podcast is with Andrew Robinson. Andrew is a partner in Eco Connections and has been really encouraging as we've got going. The resource that we'll be talking about today in particular is Andrew's blog. I'll put the links to the blog on Medium up uh, website. But really, we want to hear about Quester Game and how Quester Game came to be. And it's a fantastic resource for people who are eco-connected to be able to go out and record their observations. And hopefully somewhere, someone in the world might be able to record an observation of your species. Then uh, we know that it still exists. Andrew, can you tell us in your own words, what is Quester Game? Well... Quest game is many things, but um, the main thing that most people think of when they think of Quest game is a gaming app that takes you outdoors, and allows you to photograph plants, animals, fungi, upload them, and get points and get them identified. So experts will be looking at what you've submitted, other players will be looking at what you submitted, identifying it for you, and it gets verified, and then it gets points, and it becomes a kind of game. You can compete against other players. You can join clans. It was really designed as a kind of adventure game that gets you out into the real world. Kind of, Some people are talking about it as Pokemon Go meets David Attenborough. I don't think that's exactly right, but it's, it's something along those lines. Actually, in fact, Questy Game was uh, before Pokemon Go, so we didn't have that in our mind at the time. But the idea that you go out and you collect species is definitely part of the games, kind of like how you might have a Pokedex. But yeah, so it's, it's an outdoor adventure game. Now, the key thing here is that all the biodiversity data, the species data that you're collecting, goes towards scientific research and conservation. It gets put into a shared database, and researchers can look at that and uh, get a sort of map or data visualization of the state of biodiversity. Could you tell us some highlights from some players? I mean, there's been so many. Uh, we've had so many interesting players. Uh, I think of a, a grandmother up in uh, Queensland who has now got one of the largest collection of moths uh, sightings and species uh, that, that I've ever seen. Um, I think of a young boy uh, in South Australia who won a competition. He's only seven years old. Uh, he won the South Australian state competition in Quest Game. Uh, we've had people find new species. Uh, one was actually named after one of the players, uh, Ben Revel. Uh, he found a spider species that's been named after him. And we found invasive species in places that, you know, things that are in places they're not supposed to be and which become biosecurity alerts. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I remember a really early one when we were just launching the game. It wasn't even Quest a Game at that point. It was called Quest a Bird. Okay. It was just bird submissions. And we had a submission of a, I, th I think it's the black-faced monarch bird that appeared somewhere near Canberra and completely out of its range. Uh, not completely, but it's very rarely seen in that part. And the system gave it a very high score. At that time, we were using algorithms that looked at all the biodiversity data in a region, and it got a high score. And the only reason we were alerted to it was because it was such a high score. And when we looked at it, we realized, oh, yeah, this is actually a unique sighting for that range. And that's kind of when... Um, 
it was, you know, one of those sort of eureka moments where this, you know, we, we realized this, this can work. Um, there are ways to do these kinds of scorings uh, that, that, can, that can highlight significant finds. And that was just a young boy who happened to take a picture of a bird with his smartphone. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And that's really how people engage is you download the app and then start taking observations. It's a free app and you just start, get, you know, taking photos of things. You, you Generally, I recommend using your regular camera, uh, your phone camera. You, you can go into the Quest Game app later after you've taken all your photos and submit them through Quest Game uh, from your gallery. That way you can take as many photos as you want and kind of select the best ones for the day. That's probably a good way to do it. But you can also use a regular camera, like a DSLR camera, uh, and upload them through the website. So that's the best way to engage. If people are really engaged with the game, then they're forming tribes and things. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so we have a lot of competitions. People can um, join, join as teams. So we have something called the University BioQuest, where you, if, if you're part of a university, you can join as a, as a team. And we've got universities all around the world that are participating in this. We call them clans, again, taking that sort of gaming, adventure gaming uh, terminology. Uh, you can form a clan. Anyone can form a clan on our system. And it's basically just a group of people playing together. We don't at the moment have the ability for clans to compete against each other, although that is happening in the BioQuest. It's not happening in the main game, but you can uh, com compete against other teams. We have school teams formed in a, a lots of P to 12 schools. The kids compete against each other. So yeah, does that answer the question about forming a group? You, it allows you, you can communicate with everybody in the group and you can see what uh, other people are finding and you're scored as a group. So that allows you to compete against others. In our household, it's my daughter and I versus uh, my wife and son. <laughs> and oh, is it? Okay. My son is very jealous about uh, any points that uh, we deserve or he deserves. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. People get really competitive, uh, which, is, which is we know that the game is succeeding when that happens. Uh, so we, we look at what people get most competitive about, and that informs our design decisions. So it, it, we do get a lot of groups playing together and sometimes they'll actually collaborate in ways that we don't expect. And that is kind of a good thing because then we realize, oh, well, we could allow that to happen. Just to give an example, players formed a group. I think this was in Western Australia. And they began creating quests for each other, which wasn't something that we had had in the game. So the game allows you to create a quest at any time or join a quest. Quest is basically saying, can you find these species in this specific region? And you create this quest, it costs gold, you have to earn points to do it. But then that means that everything someone finds in that region gets added to your collection. Okay. So that's a good way to be able to add to your collection and you're, you get move up the leaderboard by getting species that you wouldn't normally have, have access to. So, and, and you can meanwhile join a quest that's in your region at any time and earn bonus points for spe specific species that you find. Uh, but what this one clan was doing was creating quests for each other to get the bonus points. Uh, yep. it, yeah, and, and they were having fun doing it. And we realized, well, that's actually a really good thing. Uh, they would just ask, hey, can you guys create a quest for this kind of species here? Because I'm going out looking for it. And they would do it. 
uh, and we realize, okay, well, let's, let's work with that. So that's just an example. Great. Andrew, thanks for those insights to give us a feel for how the, the game's played. So anybody listening to this should download the app and just get going, really. Great. So, Andrew, you told us about the moment with the bird, which said that this could really work and provide information about species that are outside their range and be mm. part of mapping things. But mm. um, that was, I guess, when you'd already started. Was there an aha moment? How did this come about? So I'm not sure that there was a specific aha moment, but what comes to mind is these sort of threads of technologies that were building up. And we realized you, if you synthesize them, you could get amazing results. We had been doing a lot of work in collective intelligence technologies and had written a lot about it and had studied them and, and had developed test ones of that's large numbers of people getting together sharing knowledge for some larger good. They're also known as expertise engines. And we had developed an expertise engine and were experimenting with a lot of different things. And then at the same time, you had smartphones coming up that could do more and more. You had apps that were getting more and more capable. And then you had big data systems like the Atlas of Living Australia in Canberra. And I would say the Atlas was a big inspiration for us. We looked at what they were doing and they were collecting all these data sets. And you had, you know, APIs were getting more popular and you could start combining all these things. And I think that was the aha moment for us when we realized we could combine all these things together to get a bunch of people online to identify things as accurately as quick and quickly as possible provide data that's useful, location-based data that's, that's useful for science and conservation, and, 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 and the emerging citizen science happening probably also informed our thinking as well. So it was a, it was a number of things coming together that uh, the, 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 if there's any aha, it's just I just remember one day visualizing all these things and being able to go outdoors and submit photos and get a quick, accurate ID and have that be useful. Awesome, well, I love it. And in terms of how you get the identifications done and mm -hmm. eco-connections, when you get eco-connected, some of the money mm -hmm. that is collected goes to the Pays to Know program. Can you tell us about the Pays to Know program and how people are paid for their observations here? Sure, sure. So the full name is Pays to Know Nature. We shorten it to Pays to Know. But the idea being that knowing nature, being able to identify things has value. We know it has value because people submit things to our system and want identifications and not just Latin binomial identifications. They want to hear your expertise about some, something that they found. Just like if you take a guided tour around the wet tropics or something, you want inside information on what you're seeing. So knowing nature has value. And the idea here is that on our system, when people provide identifications or knowledge about what someone else is seeing, that's of value that the system has determined this has a certain value. And the way we do that is using uh, peer review panels that, that are built into the system, that it rewards them with uh, a, a financial reward. 
And what they do, rather than it, it going to that person individually, each person on the system can nominate an organization that's working in conservation. And we have over 100 organizations on our system that they can select. These are organizations that have signed up with us. And they, not, they, they select the organization. And every time they identify something correctly, some money goes to that organization on their behalf. And they can see whenever they look at something to identify how much potential money they can earn for that organization. It's usually around 50 to 60 cents per identification. So it, it fluctuates. And that fluctuation is based on a number of factors. Who else has identified it so far? Uh, how, long, how difficult it is to identify and so on and so forth. So the system is doing a lot of calculations to, to figure out what that value should be. But that money is then distributed to all these organizations. And by doing this, we're creating what some people are called the nature economy so that you have people who demand the knowledge they want to know, they'll pay for the information. That could be biosecurity. That could be an ecotourism guided tour. It could be a council that wants to know what its biodiversity looks like. There are lots of customers out there wanting to pay for that knowledge. And then there's the people with the knowledge who are basically offering it up and earning some money for their nominated organization. Does that make sense? That's a bit of a long explanation. Yeah. yeah. So you, somebody looks at the at the, your observation and then mm -hmm. they get paid for telling you what it is and Correct. telling you a bit about it. And then that money gets donated to your list of conservation partners, which is quite a long list of, is it over 100 by now? Yeah, it's over 100. Yep. Yeah. And so there's a lot of conservation partners that people can choose from to donate that identification money to. Now, EcoConnections, Andrew, is quite enthusiastic about identifying all the species on the planet. Taxonomy, in the, which is the science of identifying the species, is, has only really identified up to 30% of the species on the planet. And so we, we really think that taxonomy is a really important first step to understanding what's going on. And these identifications, they really are providing explanations at the species level. And so understanding what you're looking at at a species level is really a first handle on understanding uh, how things are fitting together. And um, the Pace to Know program is an investment in taxonomy, isn't it? Yes, exactly right. Although it doesn't always get to the species level. It can get to the, you know, even the ordered level can, can provide some value for scientific research. Uh, it, but it is a taxonomy system in that people are classifying things, they're putting them into classifications and they're getting rewarded for doing it correctly. Yep. Uh, and, and it's a learning mechanism. So it's really creating a new generation of classifiers, whether you want to call them taxonomists, uh, you know, that, that, that word has a long history that, you know, that people have to train for a long time to become a certified taxonomist in a category of life. Um, I don't know what you want to call this group of people. Some are amazingly good at identifying species. We have a guy in uh, California who can identify pretty much every plant, major plant species, and certainly every beetle species in, um, in Australia. Wow. Uh, he, doesn't he doesn't have a PhD 
We have a guy, uh, a spider expert in Australia who doesn't have a PhD, who's considered the foremost authority on spiders in Australia. He's written the book uh, on spiders. So I don't know what you want to call this group of people, uh, but they are classifying these sightings for the benefit of mapping biodiversity. Yeah, look, uh, the, there's a, definitely a bottleneck in, in uh, uh, taxonomy and the, ta the talent and the idea that we, we can train people through Quest to Game. And totally, yeah. Bring that pipeline of uh, expertise through the system. The challenge of identifying the other 70% of the species on the planet that we don't know the names of is really quite a large task. So starting with training in taxonomy and a system that rewards people for their knowledge to me, is a really great place for eco-connections to start their investment in taxonomic capability and research. Uh, Definitely. And I would add that it, knowing the names of things connects you, so that's the eco-connection, uh, with, with the thing itself. So, and a lot of our younger players in the game are learning that that's not just a bird, but that has a name. And yeah. all the, sometimes it has many names, but they're learning that it's different than other birds and they, they get recognized for being able to classify things and they move up levels. So we can actually calculate how many levels have been gained on our system. I think it's over 15,000 now levels that players have gained. So we know that they're learning and that's, that's a really core function of what we do is to try to get people to learn. We're not, we, we, we can't replace taxonomists. So Andrew, what other partnerships are you looking for to develop and help the project along? Uh, it's almost like what partners aren't we looking for? Pretty much, we, this is an open space. Biodiversity is core to, to all of human life. So sometimes it's hard to think of something that we're not uh, interested in. So, for example, tourism, I'm in Cairns right now. We didn't necessarily moved the company to Cairns thinking about tourism, but it turns out there's a, there's a huge tourism market here that they can engage with uh, tech taxonomy and uh, eco-connections and connecting people to nature, not just to have an experience with it, but actually to contribute to the mapping and conservation of it. Uh, so that's, that's an example of, of uh, a link. Uh, there are corporates who, who have staff who are in need of a connection to the place, the locality in which they work. And they need to, so we have corporates coming to us saying, can we have a team-based BioQuest competition that, that each department will compete against each other. And meanwhile, they're developing that sense of feeling connected to the environment in which they work. Plus there's also the whole mental health benefits of all this, of getting outdoors and, you know, de-stressing, just connecting to nature and de-stressing is really uh, valuable for corporates and, and, and mining companies needing to know what's where and are there species that they have to worry about. There often are. And, and are they there or not? You know, so it's schools, uh, the schools getting kids outdoors, uh, the outdoor classroom is, is a big thing. And, and, you know, so there's just pretty, pretty much biodiversity cuts across everything. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess what I'm hearing here is that we best way to partner and engage is to mm. is to get your organisation and form a quest 
and you can come to you and what are the sort of pricing points there for people to engage at that quest level? Yeah, so we do have a lot of organizations set up quests. We're in a transitional phase at the moment and we we will set up quests for organizations. Generally, what we do is we suggest contacting us first and then we can talk about what's what's best for for your organization, what you want to accomplish. It could be, for example, we have major bioquests, four or five of them happening happening every year. A good example is the Great Aussie Bioquest for Australians. It happens every August in National Science Week. So if someone wants to create a quest for their organization, it might be better to join the Great Aussie Bioquest and build something around that just because it, it has so much more activity. You can develop a tailored program for somebody and there'll be a charge for that. Yep. And so that's perhaps where people are best to partner in terms of being able to help fund the uh, continuing development of Quest Game. Yes, exactly right. Big ones are like the University BioQuest, which has universities around the world competing. You can sponsor a team, you can create a team. There's the Great Aussie BioQuest, uh, which is a which runs in um, over National Science Week in August. And that's a great opportunity to have a BioQuest and get your community involved and compete. Uh, we, we, it, that's often a state versus state competition. So I think uh, Western Australia won it uh, in, in the last August competition. Um, so, and then we have a P to 12 schools competition, which again, sponsoring teams or getting your school involved, that's that sort of thing. There's lots of ways to, to engage with these quests. So if you're a council or a tourism operator which had a particular area of land or next to a reserve or something like that, mm. uh, then you could also develop something for uh, in the longer term for... Exactly. So we do this a lot. We have uh, resorts, for example, that have their territory mapped and everybody who finds something on that territory gets to see on the map where it appears and how they compare to other players in that specific territory. So it's a, yeah, it's like a little BioQuest zone that we create and then they can give out their own prizes. So for example, they'll, they might give out a free uh, night's stay for whoever scores the highest for that biozone. Great. So then people who are on holiday can be involved in citizen science when they've got the uh, inclination and exactly. uh, make a contribution uh, exactly. as they visit the, the resort. Um, exactly. Andrew, just as I'm talking about citizen science there and the idea that people's observations are really important, um, do you want to just freewheel a bit about how this fits into the bigger picture of uh, bio? diversity, conservation in the world and sure. um, where the world is at? Sure. I'll do, I'll do my best. I don't know where the world is at, uh, but I know it's a big challenge. Uh, we don't really have good maps of biodiversity, of species. Like you said, we've only, uh, only uh, uh, described you know, less than 30% of, of all the species. So there's all these things, especially in Australia. Uh, I was talking to that spider expert I mentioned and he was telling me, Robert White, he was telling me that, um, uh, you know, a lot of the venoms and chemicals that they could find in spiders uh, could solve a lot of serious medical problems. But these are things that 
haven't been discovered yet. They're, they're probably out there is what he was saying, but they're disappearing, right? So that's the state that we're in. We're in a state of extinction, mass extinction, yeah. about 200 species per day. So they're estimating, some estimates are putting it that high, 200 species a day. And so it's like the thing that you want to study is just disappearing right from your laboratory. We don't have like the, a kind of weather map that we can tell us what's going on. And that's really what's necessary because we have to make decisions on what to protect, where to protect it, how to do it. And we, so we need more information. So in the biodiversity space, citizen science is all about collecting this information, right? Um, and it's about eyes on the ground, uh, getting people outdoors, recording the, the information. Uh, Till to date, it's really been focused on people who are already interested in nature. Uh, now we're starting to see one of the things that Quest Game is, has been pushing the boundaries on is, is really this is everybody. This has to be mainstream. This has to be race car drivers, uh, you know, athletes, everybody who, who may not have ever looked at nature closely needs to be engaged in this for us to make any impact. That's the thing is that this science, it's really, it, it's urgent. It has to happen now. Uh, this is something that Edward Wilson, the biologist, talks about. We, we really don't have time to, to mess around and, and business as usual isn't going to work anymore. Quite a daunting task for the average person to think that there's 2 million species, 70% of them are unnamed. And what difference can one person make? How would you respond to well, I, I don't know if that's how we should be thinking about it is whether what, what difference can one person make? Uh, rather, I think, how do we change the model? So especially the economic model, so that that society is making the difference. Uh, you know, we only one person can only make a, a, a small difference in anything, really. But as you get good at something like Edward Wilson has done with with all his work, you can make a bigger and bigger difference. And this is what it, it is. It's creating a model so that people have the ability to make that difference and get good at it and feel motivated to do so. So I think one of the big things to look out for is a lot of citizen science projects are seeing people as volunteers or even worse as sensors. Just you're an eye on the ground. You're going to take some photos. We're going to collect that data and we're going to do write a research paper about it. Well, that's the old model. Uh, that hasn't changed for hundreds of years. Uh, what needs to happen is that, you know, you have to be part of a, of a, of an economic model that, that you, in which you get to act as a scientist, as a, as a, a what Edward Wilson would call an ecosystems scientist. And this is, this is a new science. This isn't about, you know, spending years getting a doctorate. It's about being able to contribute through a network that maps the biodiversity, even to the species level. Definitely, there's all kinds of information that people can provide at a species level that's going to be valuable to ecosystem science. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Every, uh, every observation adds up. And, uh, totally. Yeah. And then uh, one of the great features of Questa Game is that the 
observations remain the property of the person that that took the observation and yeah. you curate that information through to the scientific system is that yeah yeah exactly it's it's really important that that each person each individual person owns their own observations and their own expertise now our system isn't perfect but that's the direction we're going is that people will be able to share in such a way that they feel rewarded for learning that they're not just volunteers uh, you know there's nothing wrong with being a volunteer that's great that's really important too but we have to make a major change here this can't be business as usual so we, we, we don't have time. <laughs> so the only way to power something like that is to make sure that people uh, get feel rewarded and motivated, just like you would to become any professional uh, person in any, in any field. I love Quest Game and the idea that it does empower individuals to be able to take those observations and behind the scenes, you have the expertise engine also networks really well with what we do with uh, with eco connections because eco connections is a sort of long slow burn for somebody it, you get eco connected for life uh, mm. and you might learn something about one species and if we divide up the the challenge of of knowing something about every species allocating it out can perhaps be a, somewhere where somebody could focus their identification expertise mm. So Andrew, could you tell us about your views on what we're trying to achieve with EcoConnections sure. by connecting so a person I to think every what species? What EcoConnections is doing is it connects a person to a species which is about giving meaning to that species. I mean, each person has to feel connected. We, we talked about making this mainstream, right? That idea that um, it's not just for nature lovers. Each one of us is connected to biodiversity and species. We're all part of this ecosystem. And what I think EcoConnections does is it connects you to, it gives you meaning. Uh, so, so you're actually paying for that meaning, which is really important because we, we have to feel that meaning as, 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 uh, as humans. We have to feel that because we are the only ones that can solve this problem. If you don't know its name, it doesn't right. mean anything to you. Right. And that's, that's what Edward Wilson is talking about too. You know, when he says, get it down to a species level, that's how you start to understand the connection, the, the ecosystem that we're part of. And until we understand that connection, it's really hard for us to make smart decisions. We make really bad decisions. I'd like to think that uh, both Quest Game and Eco Connections are, are making it easy for ordinary people to become scientists and to, uh, casually allow their observations or their daily reflections on their eco-connected species be really valuable parts of global consciousness, that people's consciousness itself is valuable, and that makes people more valuable. Yeah, I kind of think of it like in general education, how we have maths education, language education, that you're, you're expected to have this, this sort of literacy. And the reason we do that, because it helps society function. It, it, it allows civilization to happen. So I think there needs to be that kind of literacy when it comes to ecology, that really there has to be standardized uh, testing or something that, that uh, creates that, uh, whether it's online or whatever, however we do it. But in the same way that you can say you're, you're a literate person, 
uh, that you've, you have to be ecologically literate. Now, I have to admit that I was not trained that way when I was young. I spent a lot of times, time outdoors, and I did not uh, notice all the different kinds of life around me, just saw it as nature. I was out in nature. That's all I saw. So I, I feel like that was a real gap in my education um, that only now is starting to get filled. But I think that needs to happen at a very young age. And Eco Connections and Quest Again together can uh, be a real help for parents who want to give the skills in appreciating biology to their kids. Although I'm not sure you need to give kids that skill because it's just so natural and innate. Um, my kids are so curious about the creatures that they uh, come across in the garden and in our walks. Yeah. Yeah, it is something uh, we find that some of the most incredible observations we get are from kids because they're seeing the world uh, with very fresh eyes and they're willing to take the time and stop and look at something deeply. I remember we got one sighting. I, I still think I've saved that photo. This was a couple of years ago. Someone had taken a, a, like a, a young kid had been walking along the beach and stopped at one of those tide pools. And there was a snail that had um, crawled up and was actually crawling upside down along the film of the surface of the water. Huh. I had never seen that before. <laughs> and the kid had taken a lot of photos of that because that was obviously fascinating. It showed so much that this little creature could actually walk upside down on the surface of the water, you know? Wow. Uh, and it was a beautiful shot because you could see the underside of the snail and it was, um, it had a, it, the circumference was a light blue color. I should send you, send you this photo. It's, 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 I've never seen anything like it, but I think that could only happen with, with a, a young person who has that ability to see things, you know? I think a lot of scientists maintain that ability uh, and all the people you see, um, you know, naturalists and things are really good at that. Um, but kids are, yeah, you're right. It's just a natural thing. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. And I think that's really important that when it's a, you're not being paid for it, it's an amateur project. It mm. really is just tapping into that innate curiosity that we've all got. And it is mm. fun. And whereas people who become proper scientists who have to chase funding all the time, you know, they don't get to pursue an idea that they might have at any moment. But with these tools, we can pursue our curiosity as we come across it. Yeah, I think that's right. I do think that there's a role for both, for everybody. And I was just going to add that I think there's room for everybody. So there's room for the highly specialized scientist and then the young child who hasn't specialized at all. Both of those can inform each other. That's what's really important. Scientists can learn a lot from the fresh eyes of children who aren't specialized yet. And I guess that comes back to that snail walking upside down is yeah. that might've been dismissed as not worth recording. But somehow that the way that child captured that image and that moment was definitely had some value to it. I don't necessarily know what it is. I'm not a specialist in, in that, but I have a feeling that it was not something that a, a specialist scientist would have captured. Mm. But I think there's room and, and whether it's uh, out of curiosity and wanting to volunteer or just have fun, 
or whether it's because you really want to get a research paper or, or grant for a research paper. I think there's room for all of that. Biology is, um, uh, you know, really full of observational science too. You know, Charles Darwin's work has had, I'm not sure if there's any statistics in it. <laughs> science often gets stuck in statistics, but this is a, a branch of science where observations are really vital. You're absolutely right. Uh, and again, one thing I was, I was talking to Robert White the other day, and, and he was saying, if you think about it, Charles Darwin was a citizen scientist. Uh, that that he, he wasn't accredited when he was going out and gathering all this information. He, he was learning as a, as a citizen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's, there's a wide spectrum of, of observations that you can make, and they're all valuable. And, and we can collect these and trade them in different ways so that we can get more information about biodiversity so that we can protect it. Brilliant, Andrew. Well, that's probably a good space to uh, uh, start thinking about how we sum this up. What would you like to leave our listeners with in terms of a summary of uh, uh, what we've talked about and, uh, and Quest2Game and how people might engage with Quest2Game? So I think Quest2Game is about having fun and just in enjoying the discoveries that you make. Uh, we, we always want feedback from people so that we can make it better. We are making changes all the time. So people who have played it three months ago might be surprised by a lot of the new features it has today. And what it will have in three months will be even more amazing because we've only just scratched the surface of what's possible here. And, and, and I think that's, that's the, the exciting thing about it is, is what is its potential. But I, th I think apart from Quest Game, I think the real key thing to think about is that we really don't have much time and I don't want to sound all gloom and doom because I'm, I don't feel that way. I, I see a lot of hope here, but I do think we need to change our thinking about how we go about these things and what citizen science is and what the public's engagement is going to be. And I think it's, it needs to have an economic model. And I think we're moving that direction and, and eco connections, I think is a really good step in that direction. And that's how we, it's new ideas, it's new thinking. We can't stick with the status quo here. So that, that's what I'd like to leave the listeners with, is, is to really, we, we all need to really think differently about, about this problem. Fantastic, Andrew. Well, that two new thinking ways that people can engage with here, getting eco-connected yep. and download the app, yep. uh, join a quest and we can uh, change the world and totally. uh, can, understand can the world and yeah. well, build well, some meat in our observations. Well, we've seen this happen. So that's the other thing I would just say really quickly that we've seen this happen with smartphones, that the world has changed in just 10 years. You look around at everybody now, we're, we're all holding these devices in our hands. So we know the world can change quickly. That's the kind of change that needs to happen when it comes to biodiversity conservation. Okay, that's exactly, so when we look in 10 years, everyone will be ecologically literate. Everyone will be observing closely the nature around them and recording species and feel connected to it as they won't be walking down the streets and not being able to identify the life around them. Everyone will have that ability. So it is possible and engaging is the, is the way to bring that future to pass and to make things 
the world come together and make these things happen. Definitely. So, and I've just spotted this amazing giant grasshopper right here on the window. I will take a photo of it. This is, this is amazing. Uh, I'll take a photo of it. I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, look, I'll look forward put to it the on picture. the podcast uh, webpage. We'll look forward to the picture of the snail too. We'll put that on the webpage too. Okay. Excellent, Andrew. Well, I'll um, add uh, Andrew's blog. Andrew talks about artificial intelligence and he talks about uh, the nature of science and lots of things in the blog. So if you would like to hear Andrew's view of the world and get into some of the depth of his thinking in this space, then I'll add that link to the podcast too. Thanks so much, Andrew. Hey, and Thank you, Duncan. It was great to talk to you and I really appreciate it.